The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. I am Bill Amadeo from Manison Amadeo and Grable Associates. And today... We're going to talk about witness research going wrong, talk about post-law school reflections, and um, we'll hit that. And I guess, I'm really tired right now, guys. It's been a weird run, to say the least. And I gotta get more content done and just put it on the pile of things that have to get done. You know... In this profession, in this profession, I guess people have agendas. I don't know. And sometimes the cases, they're bigger than the people. And we're in the business of preserving or prosecuting people's freedom. That's what we do. And when people put their hands in the pie for financial or political benefits and such, and careers get threatened and all sorts of weird things happen, it becomes like this cluster of drama. So I want to tell you guys a story about witness research going wrong. And it's actually taking a lot of energy out of me, but I want my enemies to understand. I know they'll tune in, probably not live, because you're probably drunk or high. But um, when you do tune in, look at me, so I'm not going away. We have some cases right now. I won't mention names of cases. But we have some cases that are pretty well known. And things have really evolved in these cases. And they've evolved based on a lot of blood, sweat, and tears of Matt McManus, Jen Kelly, Megan Smith, myself. And we have this one witness. And the only thing I say about this witness is their profession in life. Or what their professional life was. And I'm going to watch it. Because I know who's going to watch. And who's going to send this over to the ethics board. And try to destroy me. I I know what you're going to do. So I'm going to be vague enough. Where you can't do shit to me. But I'm also going to send a message that you'll clearly understand. And it takes talent to do that. Because this is not 2018 or 1996 where I'm just going to tell you to go to hell. I'm going to use my intellectual prowess, which is deeper than yours, and you know that, enemy. But there was a witness who is hiding. And this witness is kind of key. Kind of essential to a lot of things. This witness is somebody who is supposed to be a respected individual. And we were told that this individual cannot be found right now. And we're dancing with that issue. 
how can we not find this person? And we went to every source we could to find this individual. And we were told, well, we got to adjourn things and kick things out because we can't find this person. So what Matt McManus and I decided to do was try to find on our own where this individual lived. We were told they were out of state. We just didn't believe that. We think that's bullshit. So we took separate cars. And we went to where we believed they might be. Now, when you do this journey, right? Because this is nothing that they teach you in law school. And the criminal minds from Colby, like a Norman Fell, would never have the balls to do this. Hope you're watching, Normie. But you don't really expect to find the individual. You just don't. You're thinking, I'm going to make the effort. And I'm going to make the effort so I can sleep at night. I'm going to go above and beyond for the client. Because that's what the client deserves. And while the rules of professional responsibility tell us we have to be diligent for our client. And competent. They don't explain how that's always accomplished. Because guys, sometimes one and one does not equal two. Sometimes one and one equals 11 and it's not as simple as just putting those one and ones together you have to figure out the process to get to the 11 and i will tell you for the people that have a problem with me to the quote-unquote litigators who will try to set me up we're going to win this case or die trying just so you know because this case is bigger than anything you've seen. This is not about money. This is not about Google hits. And you're goddamn right, this is personal. Because the powers that be have built political equity on the backs of these cases. The powers that be have convinced people to lie for financial security. And when you're lying about somebody's life, when somebody could end up behind bars and suicidal based on a goddamn lie, what are we doing? And this is my problem with politics. I do not know if I'm going to run for attorney general. And if the Republicans want me to run for attorney general, and I so choose... I do know what the Democratic Party is going to try to find on me. And at this point, I'm kind of welcoming it. But I'm also torn. Because what happened this week, and we're going to finish it up to explain what happened with this witness, tells me that there's more at play than just a criminal complaint. There's more at play than depositions and interrogatories. The shit got real. So as Matt is in one vehicle, and I am in the other, we don't find anyone. And we drive away. And as we are driving away, we see our witness. 
and we're like, holy shit, there they are. And we try to take out our phones to film this individual. But we're driving too fast, so we circle around. And my goal in my head is to quite simple, simply jump out of the car, show them my ID, they know who I am anyway. I am Bill Amadeo, P76194, here is my bar card, I have some questions for you. And we circle back around, and Matt is ahead of me, and I am behind. And this is one of those moments, guys, where your life's going to flash before your eyes. Matt's ahead. I'm on the phone with him. And I'm saying, film this person. I'm going to film from behind. And as we get closer to this person, they are on their phone. And they have like a hoodie on. And they reach into their hoodie as if they're going for a gun. And I'm on the phone with Matt and I'm saying, Speed ahead, I'm peeling off. Speed ahead, I'm peeling off. At that moment, we knew there was a chance we were going to get shot and killed. Because this person is going through such great lengths to hide from the court system because they got the keys to the castle and it's the castle that's freedom to our clients and I'm sure this individual is scared because the shit they've done for so long is coming back now and as we're thinking we're going to get shot in this quest to be diligent and competent lawyers your life flashes before your eyes and when it flashes before your eyes, you start thinking of everything. And when I say everything, you see your child. You see your wife. You see your loved ones. You see the ghetto. You see the suburbs. You see law school, high school, college. You see the horrors of Ducktown and the joy of the suburbs. And this is all happening instantaneously but it's in slow motion and you're peeling off this dirt road and I don't know if the individual really wanted us dead I do know they didn't want to be found and there's something powerful about not wanting to be found but you know guys When you mess with someone's life, when you mess with a young kid's life to advance your agenda, politically, financially, and we forget about the truth. Whew. Shit's deep. And I will tell you this, to the individual who appeared, and I say appeared, because we don't know for sure, to be reaching for a weapon, to not discuss this case with them. 
I want you to be very clear when you look at me. There is nothing you can do that is going to scare us off this trail. We may drive away when you have a gun on you, but the moment of truth's going to come when we're both going to be unarmed. And when we're both unarmed, and you're on that witness stand, <clears throat> and you guys all start pointing fingers at each other, that's the moment of truth, guys. And then I won't have any life left in me. We are going to win this case or die trying. That much I guarantee. Threats are not going to work. The most dangerous part of dealing with somebody who came from violence and poverty, the most dangerous part about dealing with someone who came from nothing is that they came from nothing. So some energy was taken out this week. I'll be real about that. But as you take a deep breath and you look around the playing field, <laughs> if it's possible, we're more invested now than we were before this pathetic individual appeared to be reaching for a gun. We are not the normal firm. And if you want normalcy, if you want the lawyer who works nine to five, if you want the lawyer who accepts discovery from the prosecutor asking more pro full provoking questions, you have many good options. But we take pride in not being that guy or girl. And while it's an exhausting week, I want you to know something, and you know who I'm talking to. Clock's ticking. And what you think you got on me? Shit. What we got on you? May not destroy your life the way you tried to destroy these other people's lives. But it is a rainstorm you cannot handle. You wouldn't have made it 10 minutes in my old neighborhood. 10 minutes every day, I'm still from that neighborhood. Think about it. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. People have been asking about the Sopranos situation and um, we're going to talk about that today. We'll also talk about Vito Spadafor and Gloria Trillo. As I'm a huge Sopranos fan, as you know, being an Italian from South Jersey, The Sopranos was required reading. And one of our dreams was to be on The Sopranos, and I kind of achieved that dream. We'll get into that. 
Um, I guess we should start with how it all begins. Oh, another shameless plug. Please listen to The Jail Visit, 7 p.m. on Shy Wassey Radio. But before you do that, please Google me first. I like the people. I like people to think I'm brilliant and attractive before they find out how weird I am. And the jail visit has been taking my lives and really displaying to the world how real weird I am. So Josh Strickland, thank you. But um, let's be real, man. Before I was successful, I would say stuff people just think I'm nuts. Now it's like fashionable. So Google me first. Pretend you're impressed, and then tune into the jail visit. All right, Sopranos. I am a kid bartending at Tropicana. And Tropicana has so many interesting things with my life. I bartended at Trop right after high school. Um, I bartended there when I couldn't get into law school right away. And so many things happened at Tropicana. And the casting called The Sopranos, that came because I was bartending at Tropicana. Let me tell you what happened. We're bartending a banquet, and the nerds are playing. The nerds are this band in South Jersey, and if you know South Jersey, the nerds were that ultimate cover band. People loved the nerds. And the nerds, they kicked ass for the live show. And they were swinging, singing a Sweet Caroline, and they stole the show, man. Like, everybody is just dancing and singing and it was a good time. Hey, Nancy Gordon. And, um, you know, I'm cutting the fruit. I'm making the drinks. We're having a good night with tips. The nerds are jamming. And this one guy comes up to me and a couple of my friends. And he goes, hey, have you guys ever acted before? Like, no. Now, at this point in life, there were three of us. That were approached. We don't really talk today, okay? One of us became me, whatever the hell that has become. One of them actually ended up getting connected through this audition. And one is a bartender in Jersey today. But here we are, these three young kids. Teenagers. Whole world in front of us. And this guy, who was affiliated with the nerds, tells us there's this casting call for The Sopranos. And I don't know. I'm excited. Now, understand something. If you get picked to be an extra, the pay for the day is $48. And we had to drive out to North Jersey, New York for the set. Whatever. So the three of us, we get into the car, my little Le Mans, my little gray Le Mans from my teenage early 20 years, with the music blasting, and we're talking about our favorite Soprano episodes already, and we're trying out, and we don't know at this point, you know, the whole world's in front of us. We have no idea if nothing's going to come of this, it is going to be a life-altering decision, we just don't know. I mean, imagine looking back. Like, holy shit, the whole world's right in front of you. And this story has stood the test of time. My version of it. The other guys may have a different version. So we get up there. 
And let me tell you, little spoiler alert, we got picked, we each made $48, I think we paid $128 for parking, so it wasn't a financial windfall, but we were trying out, and um, they put you on these calls, they make you read these scripts, it's an all day thing, and let me tell you, acting is real work. But we were just caught up in it. Like, this was the coolest thing in the world. Here's James Gandolfini. Here's Polly, and, and the whole crew is there. And you're a teenager. And you're actually on the set with these people. You're a poor kid from the hood. You drive up to your car you hope it doesn't break down. You try out. And now they're going to give you $48. I know you lost $80 in the process, but you're thinking, whoa, I'm on top of the world. And when you go back home, you're going to tell people you were on The Sopranos. Rick Goldie, if you're watching this, you have a lot more affiliation with The Sopranos than I do. But I got to tell you, this was pretty damn cool at my young age. So <laughs> we're like, we're sitting there and we're... The scene which was cut is just me and two guys walking by. That's all it was. Walking by. And I've, I've watched this episode so many times I cannot find myself. Never made the casting room floor, whatever they call it. But we were up there. But to me, what was more interesting was the after events. Um, let me tell you about that. The guys in The Sopranos, some of them may have been mafia-affiliated. I don't know. But when you went to the bar at night, holy shit, they thought they were truly mafia members. I literally saw people kiss James Gandolfini's ring. Like, he was the king of his court. And this crew, the reason why... They were so goddamn amazing in this show. It's because they were just being themselves. Rick Goldie once told me that James Gandolfini, a.k.a. Tony Soprano, to make himself angrier for the part, he would put rocks in his shoes so he'd be pissed off. And it worked. And we're at this dinner and this event and the whole crew is there and they're laughing and joking and drinking and you are just a fly on the wall. You are a nobody, but you felt like you were king of the world. One of the guys I went with, he connected with this girl he ended up marrying. And his lead in with her was, hey, we were just on The Sopranos. So they started a relationship by him basically lying. He didn't tell her that we were extras who weren't going to be on the show. He didn't tell her we just made $48, which doesn't cover the cost of parking. But he led with that. The other guy was just, he partied way too hard that night. He was truly enjoying the moment. And I'm the sober one, because we all know the coolest guy in the room is the sober driver, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just, the whole night was just unreal. You know, you're driving back from New York. And you don't know if this is ever going to be anything. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I actually got a callback. Now, a callback 
is when they saw something in you. They wanted you back for something. Maybe it was to take out the trash. Maybe it was to be Christopher Montesandi's left-hand guy to get killed at a poker game with Sunshine. I don't know. But I did get a callback. And at this point in my life, I'm in college full-time. And I'm supporting Aunt Mare and Mom through bartending. So I'm taking 16 credits. I'm working 40 hours a week, sometimes 50 hours a week. My whole life was just college and work. And I didn't go back up there. Because here's the thing about acting. When you make it, whoa, you make it. But the road to get there is a road of financial difficulty. I'm sure I could have kept going on for $48 an episode and maybe got a bit part and joined the Actors Guild and all that. But, I mean, it wasn't really in my family's mantra for that to happen. No regrets, but, you know, I was paying the mortgage to House and Ventnor. I couldn't keep going up to New York and North Jersey for these scenes, but it was a pretty damn cool experience. Let me tell you, James Gandolfini was a pretty cool guy. But if you put a camera in his face, today I could see Tony Soprano smashing a cell phone in somebody's face. He was just, he was Tony Soprano. Like, whoa, he really lived that part. And the whole crew, I mean, nice guys, but, you know, it was a rough bunch in my opinion. They were pretty interesting. So it's always been cool that I actually was in The Sopranos. I mean, you gotta think about this. Donald Trump told me to go to law school. I had a bit part in The Sopranos. There's been some really weird things that have happened in my life that makes for really good blogging. It doesn't always help with mental stability, but I mean, yeah, they were there. So, with that being said, I will tell you, my time on The Sopranos, albeit brief, was a life changer. It gave me a story to talk about the rest of my life. And that's what happened. Now, while I could no longer be in The Sopranos, <laughs> you like that? I want to talk about a couple characters because lately The Sopranos have been like reborn on social media. There is a lot of drama going on about The Sopranos. And we're all pissed off at how it ended, right? And by the way, if you're not pissed off about how The Sopranos ended, you are a complete idiot. Quote me on that one. Was Tony killed? That's the consensus, right? If Meadow could have parallel park, maybe she would have saved everybody. You know? When he looks up, what's he looking up at? Are they going to kill him while he's eating the onion rings? Alright. Let me stop. Because I think I've seen The Sopranos over a hundred times every single episode. One of my fondest law school members of bringing the guys over, like our clique, our inner circle in law school, and just watching The Sopranos all night. It was a big three-hour thing, and we just sat there and went through it over and over again. Obviously, with DVR, things have changed a little bit, but 2006 and Lansing at Village Green, Sopranos HBO was a big thing. I want to talk about Vito. Vito Spadafore. Because we're on The Sopranos kick. Because a friend... Actually got Vito to do a cameo recently. And let me tell you, he's a pretty funny guy. The real Vito. People really were hurt when Vito got killed. 
when Frank took Vito out caused a lot of issues. Um, people were really like shocked by that, the way it all went down. It was a horrible scene. Don't get me wrong. Maybe people were crying about how Vito went down. Before we really emphasize, you know, show empathy for Vito, let's talk about a few things. Let's remember this. And here's how you admire Vito, right? Season one. He's Vince. This heavy set guy at the store who basically gets in front of line with Christopher. Christopher shoots the guy behind the stand. Vito was Vince and he was a nobody, but he did something, obviously better than me, when he was just an extra where he, they made a character for him. And Vito becomes his beloved character. Let's remember a few things about Vito, right? Number one, he did shoot Jackie Jr. in the back of the head, right? It's a horrible scene. He sees Jackie Jr., he puts the hit on him, because Jackie and his idiotic crew killed Sunshine when they tried to rob the poker game, and they were on crank, and they could have just went to the Jersey Shore and gambled, but instead, they enter the poker game, Jackie Jr. gets killed. Vito did that. You can still see the scene, he comes up behind him, shoots him right in the back of the head. Not a great guy. But he was moving his way up to being this union tycoon, right? Let's also remember this. When Vito lost all that weight, he had planned to take Tony out. In fact, before he gets caught at the homosexual bar, he's on his way up, right? Let's not forget, he planned to kill Tony. So how much love do we have for Vito? But let's... To me, Vito could have been Vito. He could have owned his sexuality. He could have been this big time union quote tycoon and did whatever he wanted, but then he ran in the Finn. And we all know what happens at the construction site with Finn, right? Come on guys, I was in this episode, but this was a damn good episode. Vito, is engaged, and I'll be I'll careful right now, okay? He's engaged in a sexual act with the security guard. Finn comes into work early, and Finn sees him. So what does Vito do? Does Vito laugh it off? Does Vito try to deny it? No! He goes up to Finn and threatens him in the porta potty right? bunch of shit he tells finn we're going to the padres game and it's bat day get there early i don't want to miss the national anthem Fido was forcing that kid to go to a baseball game with him for purposes finn did not want to be involved with finn is scared shitless of Vito. finn goes tell meadow meadow tells Carm. Carm tells Tony. Tony brings um, Finn to the Bada Bing. He explains what happened, and the rest is history. I mean, if Vito would have just let Finn be, he might still be alive today. He was a scumbag, alright? And not because he's homosexual. Good for him with his sexuality. But, 
He killed Jackie Jr. He planned to kill Tony. Then he threatens Finn? What do you think was going to happen if Finn showed up to that game? I, I don't know. When Vito leaves the wedding and he goes to the homosexual bar and he goes to the one where Sal is picking up money, he gets caught with the guy with the chaps. I can still remember, I was home from term break. My aunt and my mom are like screaming. Mom is a year from death. Aunt Mare is sick. And these two women that raised me were sitting there watching Sopranos and see Vito getting caught in the village people outfit. It was still one of the funniest memories. And at this point, Vito holds ass. And at this point, you feel bad for Vito, right? It's like, okay. He can't be himself. He's going to get killed. He's running with the mob. He can't be true to his sexuality. So what's he do? He runs out to the middle of nowhere with a bunch of cash. And he gets in a car accident with the guy. And he says to the guy, hey, can I just pay you? We don't need to exchange insurance. What's he do? He kills that guy in the back. Vito killed two people in the back. Let's remember that. Jackie Jr. and the poor guy in the fender bender. Things get weird because season six, it became about Vito, right? Like the Raiders took this big turn. And Vito runs out to the middle of nowhere. And he pretends to be a sports writer. Here's what's really confusing. When he's pretending to be a sports writer, he wasn't knowledgeable about sports. And people start picking up on this. And he runs in the gym. And Jim was probably the love of his life. Johnny Cakes. Let me tell you guys. I don't understand why Jim fell so hard for Vito. If you watch the show, they, like, have instant chemistry and move in together like that. Thank you, Nancy Gordon. Now, and by the way, I you know what? Vito was an interesting character. Okay, but tell me that Johnny Cakes was not too good for Vito. Okay, Vito is sitting up there. He doesn't have a job. Jim gets him a job doing basically handyman work. He screws that up. He's sitting there cooking for Jim. Jim's working at the friggin' diner, doing the volunteer fireman thing. And he falls in love with Vito? I mean, Jim could have thrown a dart in a bar and done better than Vito. And then Jim gets his heart broken because Vito leaves. And we know what happens then. Frank meets him at the hotel, and that's the end of Vito. But, I mean, I didn't get it. Like, my, I've always been frustrated. Like, why did Jim move in with Vito so quick? Vito's living under an assumed name. He's got no job. He's trying to be a sports player. He doesn't know shit about sports. And he moves him in, falls in love, in like a two-week period. And then Vito leaves. I don't know. It, it bothered me. Yes, Nancy, I get it. It was about love, but come on. Johnny Cakes was way too good for Vito. Let's talk about Gloria Trollo. All right. One of Tony Soprano's many mistresses. 
Gloria Trill's an interesting character. We know her demise is horrible. But let's start with this. Where does Tony meet Gloria? He meets her at his shrink. Now, I think everybody should be in therapy. I know my therapist helps me. But he met her at the shrink. They had instant chemistry. He changes times with her. You know, and I was always under the impression, this was just me, Tony screwed up. He never should have laid a hand on her. No man should ever lay a hand on a woman. But I'm talking about the emotional connection here. I think he went with Gloria Trillo to piss off Dr. Malfi. That's what I think his move was. And dude, I get it. I understand, but, you know, I mean, this did not work out well. They're on the boat. She's canceling her therapy appointment to go hook up with him on the boat. Okay, I'm going to tell you, it was pretty clear Gloria needs those sessions. This was a mistake. Um, but they end up together. He's in love with her at the zoo. And I got to wonder, did Tony love everybody but Carmelo? How did he fall in love with He beat Zellman's ass for hooking up with his girl. The one with the one leg he was really into. Gloria Troll, he was head over heels for a minute. Things really took off in a bad direction when Gloria throws the stake at the back of his head. Now, I remember watching this with some of the law school crew. And she takes the stake and she throws a fastball and hits Tony. Now at this point, you know you have an unstable person, right? I definitely would have got out of that relationship right at that point. Unless she had glasses. Get it. Okay. The glasses fetish. Anyway. <laughs> but when Gloria takes his Christmas gift that he gives her on the boat and she throws into the water. All right. We have an unstable person going on here, right? Tony had a knack for picking crazy people. Sorry, Nancy. And I'll admit, in my younger days, before I found stability, glasses would have went a long way to overlooking mental stability. I'm sorry. Man, you give me a good-looking librarian type with some mental health issues. I was in back in the day. But anyway, I digress. When Gloria drives Carmelo for a test drive, oh my god, worlds are colliding. Tony did not handle that well. Remember when he went to the car dealership and, ugh, it was just a bad scene, man. I really felt bad when Patsy threatened to kill Gloria. Seeing Patsy's ugly face as potentially the last face she was ever going to see, and Patsy telling Gloria that it was over with Tony. She eventually kills herself. Then her ghost comes out. It was... It was bad times. At the end of the day, I gotta think. If Gloria would have just taken the gift that Tony bought her, not taken Carmelo on a test drive, and maybe just left the steak on the table... You know, I'm not saying it would have been a great love, but it would have ended amicably. And I gotta think if Vito never threatened Finn, 
he'd probably still be alive today doing his no-show jobs. And if I would have answered the goddamn casting call and kept making the $48, I mean, I would have been broke. But who knows? Guess we'll never know. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. I tried to tag some people in this one and it did not go through, so I will tag them later and maybe that's why uh, technical difficulties came in. Just getting out of weekend court. We're going to talk about defending the criminal client with immigration issues because this has become like this widespread issue lately and I see a lot of defense lawyers actually committing malpractice in this genre. Let's take from the top. When you have a criminal defendant that you are representing, one of the first questions you have to ask is, do they have immigration issues? It is far easier to defend somebody who's American citizen as opposed to somebody who's not. Because sometimes when you plea somebody out, if it's going to be a plea deal, you could win the battle and lose the war. And what I mean by that is the following. Hypothetically, if you get somebody to deal with a lifetime, but it gets them deported, did you do a job or did you commit malpractice? Let's break that down. This is where city prosecutions have become extremely dangerous of late. Because normally when you think of city prosecutions, you're thinking to yourself, it's usually a light-end misdemeanor. And that could be right, but for somebody with immigration issues, that could change the whole genre. Let's break it down. When you have somebody who is not an American citizen, there's really a six-step process you have to go through. Let's go through those steps. Let's talk about how city prosecutions have become dangerous. And let's talk about no contest, please. Let's analyze that. Okay, number one. Look at the charge. Some charges will speak for themselves. If somebody's being charged with homicide or a CSC, I mean, it's common sense that there's going to be not only prison concepts, but there's also going to be immigration concepts in play. But it gets a little deeper than that. Something like felonious assault sounds a lot worse than it is. Felonious assault in Michigan is a four-year felony. And generally, it's probationary guidelines. So you're not thinking it's a huge deal. But a felonious assault could lead to deportation. So after you see the start, the charge, actually go to the statute on point. When you go to the statute on point, this is where you start running into your immigration issues. This is where you start digging into it deep. You have to ask yourself after you see the statute, do we have a crime of moral turpitude? Now a crime of moral turpitude, that is not as simple as you might think. Generally, a crime moral turpitude refers to crimes that shock the conscience. The problem when you have this dynamic with immigration and criminal law, the big problem you have, guys, is every county is going to view that concept different than the agent that could be looking at deportation issues. They could also put a third view on it. So you're in this weird shade of gray. 
First step, though, is it a crime moral turpitude? If it is, you know there's deportation concepts involved, and you know this is a case you have to take to trial. You can't plead that out. It's either going to be a dismissal, a not guilty verdict, or your client is going to get sent out of the country. So watch your back on that. Next, you got to ask yourself, is it a crime that's an aggravated felony? This is real deception. We're talking about aggravated felonies. Let's break that apart. Because you think an aggravated felony, you're thinking of assaultive behavior. you got to watch out for RICO charges and stuff, because sometimes drug cases can be deemed aggravated felonies. And while it may lead to a probation sentence, an aggravated felony could also get your defendant deported. Next, I look at other grounds. When we say other grounds, understand this. There's this catch-all. When I say there's this catch-all, that's where things get really dangerous. You start with the premise, do we have a crime of moral turpitude? I don't see that, so we move on. Do I have the aggravated felony? Good to go, if you see either of those two, right? Then there's this, what I like to call a slider, using a baseball analogy. The other grounds of being deported means that even if it was not one of those first two concepts, an agent for deportation could still say this is going to trigger it. So what you have to do at that point is look at the case law. The problem with the case law is this. And hone in on this part. This is where things get really sensitive. The case law prior to like 2016, it may be a case on point for what you're studying, but the immigration laws have transferred and changed so much that sometimes it will not give you the perfect analysis. Here's what that means. Going back to our law school days, right? If you saw a green on a case on Westlaw, you're thinking that's good law. You could have a green on the flag and it could still fall into this trap because the law has changed so much. You have to study published cases and non-published cases. So when you're taking an immigration case, or I should say a defense case that has immigration consequences, your cheat sheet goes like this. What's the charge? What's the statute? Is it a crime of moral turpitude? If not, it's an aggravated felony. If not, so fall into the other area. And is there a case on point? Let's get deeper with that. Because city prosecutions have become highly dangerous. Now, when you think of city prosecutions, you're normally thinking this is your run-the-mill misdemeanor. And your run-the-mill misdemeanor does not have great consequence for the American citizen. However, it sure can for somebody who's not here as a naturalized citizen. Example, this is the OUIL. When you think of an OUIL, it's a drinking and driving case, right? Pretty standard. At least your first one is. Careful in Oakland County. That's a story for another time, but the average American that gets their first OUIL is probably not going to go to jail if things are handled properly. But if you're not an American citizen, it can get you deported. Example of a case. Guy blows a .22. That's the high back. So the penalties get 
more severe for a high back as opposed to your normal drinking and driving. And your agenda there, if you can't win the case at trial, would be can I somehow get it down to an impaired driving? And you want the impaired driving because the impaired driving will generally keep your guy out of jail and also keep them on the road. However, you could protect their driver's license and protect them from jail and still get them deported. So when somebody has an immigration situation and it's a simple drinking and driving case, you may have to take that to trial, not to commit malpractice. City prosecutors usually have like a scheme and a formula. We go from this charge to that charge. The problem with the city prosecution when somebody is not an American citizen is that the city prosecutor is in the public sector and may not be connected to the dangers of deportation. A state prosecutor is usually more in tune with that. So while it's normally easier to deal with a city prosecutor and a state prosecutor, when you have somebody with immigration issues, the city prosecution can be a major red herring that could hurt your client. Another thing you want to do if you're in that plea stage, and this is really what I call the danger zone, okay? Beware of guilty pleas, even to low-end misdemeanors. You want to try to justify a no-contest plea. Now, normally, when there's a no-contest plea, what you're saying is, okay, I'm not contesting the charge, I'm not admitting guilt. There's some benefits to that, but you got to go a step further. We have a no-contest plea. We have to be wary of the factual basis attached to no-contest plea. Traditionally, and let's be careful with that word, okay? Traditionally, a no-contest plea means the people, meaning the prosecutor and defense counsel, will just present the police report to the judge. The judge, he or she will read that report, say, I find the contents, the elements valid for a no-contest plea. You got to go a step further as defense counsel today. If you just put the police report into the factual basis, that will be provided to the immigration officials. And there, you can actually hurt yourself for major failure. You gotta watch that situation. Because a no contest plea seems like a win. But if you didn't actually create the factual basis, get it approved by both the prosecutor and the judge, a no contest plea could actually be worse than a guilty plea in certain situations. When I think about immigration and criminal lawyers, you gotta watch it because it does go hand in hand. Just like probate and crim could go hand in hand at times. Best immigration lawyers I've seen out there. You got Brad Thompson. He's excellent. Like I've have him in our building. Um, Brad and I always refer cases back and forth to each other. Mike Chavez, who I know from Cooley, is an excellent immigration lawyer. But you need an immigration lawyer on the horn. They need to contact you for the criminal aspect. You need to contact them for the immigration aspect. We're usually masters in one field and not both. It's good to have immigration knowledge as a defense lawyer, just like it's good to have defense knowledge as an immigration lawyer, but you need to have that ebb and flow going back and forth. 
I think Brad and Mike put them up against anybody. As far as defense lawyers, I've been in the trenches with Ravi Guru Murphy. I've been in the trenches with Megan Smith. And Scott Grable's told us all an amazing amount of knowledge on this. One of the things that Scott taught me back in 2017 when everything started was prepare to always try a case when there's an immigration consequence involved. You are better off losing at a trial on a bad case than taking a plea which on its face looks beneficial if it leads to the immigration triggers. You gotta watch that. You know, you should always plan to win any trial anyway, but I'm telling you that risks are greater when it's not an American citizen you're representing. It's one of the reasons why I think Doug Corwin will be such a great probate judge. Probate matters. I'm talking about juvenile cases, I'm talking about CPS cases. They have a criminal flair to them. They're almost like companion cases. And sometimes you're dealing with a criminal case and a probate case going hand in hand. People don't realize is in the probate matter, the factual basis and the transcripts established there can also lead to deportation issues. Someone like Doug Corwin, who is one of the best criminal lawyers in the state, is going to understand when he's a judge that the immigration consequences are a layer of things that need to be played out in probate court. We can't have judges or prosecutors just going through the motions, and we cannot have defense lawyers just pushing paper. When you have a defendant with immigration consequences, the stakes become higher. You need to do two times the work. You need to dig in. Think about it, guys. Charge. Statute. Crime and moral turpitude. Do we have an aggravated felony? Do we fall into the catch-all? Is there a case on point? Beware of city prosecutions. Watch your no contest, please. Prepare for trial. If you had to take a crash course on defending somebody who has immigration consequences, that's what I would need you to take. That's what we need to do to bang these things out. And if we don't, we're doing our clients a disservice. I'm going to get back to work now. I thank you for tuning in. I am Bill Amadeo. I approve this. Have a good day, guys. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.